At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. Welcome to the Cryptid Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us, and if you're listening, it's you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. And I'm Addison Peacock. And I always love when we get to start this show. We usually start the show with the energy of me interrupting Addison and we're caught very <laughs> off guard. Today we're starting with the energy of me trying to say a nice thing just before we started, and then Addison sort of undercutting me with the promise to ruin my faith in humanity via this episode. So no. I'm not really sure what energy that brings to the table today, but... Let's figure it out. I was being cheeky. Okay, so I make a lot of uh, false promises in terms of, like, I say that I'm going to do an episode about something, and then I kind of forget about it, and it never happens. And Uh I get that the future stretches before us in infinity, and there will be chances for me to do said episodes. Right, and also time isn't real, so... Yeah, but never has there been so fast a turnaround (laughs) than from last week to this week, uh, because I normally, during the time I would be normally picking out a creature to highlight this week, Mm -hmm. I couldn't stop going down old rabbit holes of one of my favorite things to read about when I was a kid, popped up in a lot of books I grew up reading, and I talked about it just last week. I said, I really want to do an episode about some famous hoaxes. And so, hello. Oh, so here we are. I'm here to talk about cryptozoological slash supernatural hoaxes. I've picked about five that are some of my favorites. Uh, and I want to just kind of take us on, on an unconventional journey through some of them. Okay, I'm excited. Let's do it. So, like I said, Alex, less less evil and more chaotic neutral, if anything. like Yeah, that's fair. It's like the, the long con and like the grift, but it's not like mm-hmm. hurting people per se. Okay, some of these are wreaking a little bit of psychological damage, but mostly it's just kind of being on the grift. So I'll start with one that is more of a cryptozoological hoax, probably arguably the most well-known cryptid hoax of all time. We talked about it very briefly Mm -hmm. in a previous episode, and that is the Fiji mermaid. Oh. I'm assuming, Alex, are you familiar with the Fiji mermaid at all? I am. Yeah, I am familiar with the Fiji mermaid. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot more fun stuff to talk about with the Fiji mermaid, but at its most basic... It is the torso of a monkey that someone taxidermied to a fish. It is beautiful, and I love her. <laughs> and they basically, for quite a while, toured this thing around the world, telling people it was a mermaid, and people paid lots of money to see it, and the old-timey folks just could not get enough of the Fiji mermaid. And <laughs> particularly, um, I, I have not actually seen The Greatest Showman, so Alex, I'm going to need you to tell me, is there a scene in The Greatest Showman where Hugh Jackman uh, <laughs> puts the Fiji mermaid on display? Uh, yeah, it's one of the uh, deleted scenes. He sings an entire beautiful ballad to it, and then they tap dance together in a dream sequence. Oh my god. <laughs> Wait, do I need to watch it's this powerful. movie now? <laughs> it's very powerful. <laughs> so... Uh, I was going to say, I didn't actually know this. I just kind of knew generally about the Fiji mermaid, what everybody knows. I didn't know that one of its greatest proponents for a while was P.T. Barnum. I actually did know that. Yeah. 
Um, the exhibit that sort of created the concept of the Fiji mermaid in its title was sort of created and coined by P.T. Barnum, which kind of makes oh, sense. Oh, that's scamp. Yeah, since he was a heck of a huckster and not too great of a dude. But Them pipes, though. <laughs> I was going to say, please do not ascribe the positive attributes of Hugh Jackman <laughs> to the long-dead P.T. Barnum, who we do not know if he could sing. Yeah, I will not. We do not, not in fact, know if he could sing. So LiveScience.com has a kind of great overview of the history of the Fiji mermaid as far as it can be traced. It's a little tricky because, as you can imagine, people have been claiming they found mermaid skeletons for, like, as long as mermaid myth has existed. But as far as they can tell in terms of they cite like the curator of the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and they cite a couple essays on specifically Barnum's relationship with the mermaid. This is sort of how we can trace it. So we're not really sure who exactly created the physical mermaid. We know that Barnum Mm -hmm. kind of popularized the story and the attraction, but according to Stephen C. Levi, who wrote the essay P.T. Barnum and the Fiji Mermaid, Um, which was an article in the journal Western Folklore. The mermaid was probably created in the early 1800s by a Japanese fisherman. So (laughs) Levi suspects that the creation of the mermaid was a joke. Um, But then another person writes, Alex Boese, B-O-E-S-E, of the Museum of Hoaxes posits that these were used in um, some sort of religious practice or maybe was meant to represent a deity of some kind. So there's some debate about Interesting. Why the mermaid was made. <laughs> so either it was... Uh-huh. And the, I was going to say, this is just, you know, the variety of when you let people just kind of make stuff up because we have no information. Either it was a significant artifact or just somebody jerking around with a sewing needle and some dead animals. <laughs> this is like every paper people write in college. They're like, well, either <laughs> it was a transformatively important or um, maybe Maybe the opposite of that. Is the thing. So it was either this thing or the exact opposite. <laughs> One of the two must be true. And there's a lot of like probably's surrounding the history of the Fiji mermaid prior to mm-hmm. it falling into Barnum's lap. So this isn't just me. This is kind of coming with the territory of the way people are writing about how it got to where it ended up. But it was probably sure. sold to a Dutch merchant during the 1810s because right then they were the only Western nation that was trading with Japan. So that's kind of the only way it makes sense for it to kind of make its way into the European market. Yeah, that's So um, then after Commodore Matthew Perry, also known for his, you know, starring role on the television show Friends. Sorry, that's what I was going to ask. I was going to say, what a weird joke. Um, opened trade between Japan and the rest of the Western world in 1853. Then a bunch of other fake mermaids came onto the trade scene. So that's what I mean when I say it gets messy. Like, it starts to become difficult to tell which fake mermaid mm-hmm. is the Fiji mermaid. There's probably, if I'm being honest and cynical, more than one um, mermaid that Honestly, was... Honestly, yeah, that would yeah. track for me. It's that kind of like um, when you watch, like, a sitcom where, like, a kid's, like, pet fish keeps dying and the parents just keep replacing it. It's like every time the Fiji mm. mermaid, like, broke, P.T. Barnum got a new one and was like, no, it always looked like that. This, what are you talking about? This has always been the Fiji mermaid. Don't be cruel to her. It was always giving, like, a little thumbs up. Uh, I would love if it was giving a little thumbs up, but... Oh, that'd be amazing. After it was gotten by the Dutch, it made its way to England. The Dutch merchant ship sank, but an American captain named Samuel Barrett Ease, Eads, rescued the crew and the mermaid and he liked it so much that he bought it from the Dutch and he had to sell his ship to buy it 
Wow. Have you ever loved just like a, a fake a fake mermaid skeleton so much? I mean, I've definitely I've definitely felt that bond with like several different stuffed animals. Okay, that's fair. This can't this can't be that different, right? Okay, if you want to tell me that Captain Eads slept with this every night, I'm gonna have some very mixed feelings. <laughs> so basically he needed to make money for travel because he had sold his ship, so he started displaying it. He he exhibited it in Cape Town, and it was written about by an English missionary in a newspaper article, and that's kind of how we're able to trace that it ended up there. Mm -hmm. And then in September of 1822, he brought it to London. She's just on a world tour. Yeah. She is from coast to coast, from continent to continent, east to west, world tour. He set up a display, put her in a glass dome. I'm just calling... I'm assuming a lot about this mermaid that that never was. Yeah. In terms of... I'm just using the... I'm using the pronoun she because it's a mermaid, and that kind of tends to go along with that, but I also acknowledge that because it is the fusion of a dead fish and a dead monkey, it is probably not have a... It probably does not have a gender that it identifies with, but it might. I don't know. That's fair, yeah. But you know what? I mean... Gender is really just sort of a social construct and a matter of identity. So whatever her self-identity was would be true. But we also don't have the chance to know that on account of the fact that um, Barnum just sort of took this weird skeleton (laughs) thing, chimera, all over the world and maybe possibly had like a support blanket relationship with it. I'm not really sure. Oh, we're not at Barnum yet. (laughs) No. Yeah, that's right. We're at Captain Eads. Yeah, E-A-D-E-S, I, by the way, okay, for spelling. Thank you. Yes, I, I got the two men confused in my mind. Oh, it's okay. It's it's fine. It's easy to mix up the two men that were obsessed with Maybe this when Captain Eads mermaid. gets his own musical, I'll be able to keep them straight. Yeah. So, uh, this... Per- Did you know The Greatest Showman is getting a sequel? How? I don't know. <laughs> Do we watch P.T. Barnum die? Okay, I don't want to go into this right now. So, it was originally marketed as the Remarkable Stuffed Mermaid. That was the display name, and people paid one shilling a piece to see it. <laughs> nice. And then after um, he arrived in London, Eads commissioned naturalists, two naturalists, to examine it. Um, but and obviously they told him very quickly, "Sir, this is fake. This is a monkey <laughs> skeleton and a fish skeleton." Um, yeah, that. Uh, I mean, they had to have seen that coming. So here's the thing: he didn't. <laughs> he didn't like this answer. <laughs> So he got a second opinion. (laughs) He found some other naturalists who knew a lot less and asked them to say it was genuine. And they said, yes, this is very real. Well, mood. You've got yourself a genuine mermaid here, son. So then um, he claimed that one of the other naturalists who said it was fake, he just made up. He just claimed that this guy, Sir Everard Holm, said it was real after he had specifically told him it was fake. And so this guy obviously got really mad and got a bunch of newspapers to write up things about how the mermaid was fake. And I just... Oh my goodness. I'm losing my... I'm cackling because I just... In a time where looking at the news is like always a really stressful, upsetting undertaking, I really Mm -hmm. kind of can't help but yearn for the days where two adult men were taking out hit pieces on each other in the newspaper about the realness of a stuffed mermaid. Yeah, can you imagine? What a simpler time. Oh, it's so good. So that there was the rush of articles denouncing the mermaid, and then in January of 1823, the exhibit of the stuffed mermaid closed down. The mermaid kept touring England, but it was not really that popular because everyone had already read the articles about it being fake. So uh, that'll do it. Also, not only did the mermaid get busted as being fake, it turned out that Eads didn't 
completely owned the ship that he had sold to pay for it. Oh no. So the other part owner sued him and the mermaid was declared a ward of the court. What? She was seized by the courts. <laughs> I'm sorry. Wow. I'm okay. Wow. I didn't mean to. Val's going to have to edit out like multiple chunks while I talk about the Fiji mermaid of me like cackling because this is one of my favorite things in the whole world. <laughs> Val, don't you dare. Save it all. She was. She was repossessed. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just imagining like guards coming to this guy's house and carrying her away. <laughs> Yeah, right? It's sad, but it's also really good. So he was ordered to pay back the co-owner of the ship that he'd sold. And he spent 20 years paying off his debt and never succeeded. And then when he died, the mermaid went to his son. Oh, I see. So there's a bit of a dark time where we don't really know what was going on with the mermaid, aside from the fact that then she went to his son. And then the mermaid was bought by the owner of the Boston Museum in the 1840s. So this was, uh, the owner was Moses Kimball, and in 1842, Kimball went from Boston to New York to meet with his dear friend who had recently purchased a museum in the city, whose name was... Oh, do tell. P.T. Barnum. Da-da-da. <laughs> so the two of them worked together to create the Fiji Mermaid exhibit, which, by the way, the spelling has shifted over the years, originally was spelled F-E-J-E-E, -E -E. so I don't know, that's what There was an attempt. An attempt was made. So... <laughs> They made these made-up letters to papers from people in distant states who claimed to have met this fictional doctor and seen his amazing creatures that he had these specimens of, including the mermaid. This mm -hmm. Dr. Griffin was made up for, like, the lore to sell this exhibit. And Dr. Griffin was not a uh, real person. He was a guy named Levi Lyman, which is a hilariously on-the-nose name. Wow, what <laughs> uh, a powerful pseudonym. <laughs> His real name, I, as far as I know, Levi Lyman, spelled L-Y-M-A-N, but still. Yeah, but come on. He also worked with Barnum on a hoax in 1835, but I don't know what the specific <laughs> hoax was. God, I... Addison, can I tell you something? Yes? I hope that someday our histories tell people that we collaborated <laughs> on a hoax. Do you have any idea what a powerful sentence that is? Like, these two are linked in history because they collaborated on a hoax. That's just amazing. On more than one. On yeah. many. Regularly collaborated on hoaxes. Also, here's the thing. Around the same time as the Fiji mermaid, a pretty newly discovered animal was the platypus. So oh, man, when they, oh, man. They exhibited the platypus along with it, and it made it look a lot more legitimate. Because if you showed me a stuffed platypus, like a, I don't mean like a fuzzy stuffed animal, I mean like a taxidermy platypus, mm -hmm. and I didn't already know they were real, I would probably think it was also a fake animal. Oh yeah, I would say you made that up. Yeah, like, oh I'm sorry, it's a, it's a beaver duck with poisonous claws? Alright, yeah, get out of here, real. buddy. Pack yeah. up and get out of town. I'll take the mermaid. Yeah, exactly. And so... <laughs> They also, uh, Dr. Griffin, quote-unquote, not his real name, and Barnum had this kind of public fight because Barnum wanted to put the mermaid up at the American Museum, and then Dr. Griffin mm -hmm. said no. And then Barnum had already created publicity materials for the mermaid to be at that museum. Um, and then, and since he couldn't use them, he gave them to the New York media, which made him look generous, air quotes, but uh. was stealth marketing. <laughs> it was stealth marketing to promote the mermaid. 
And he told each of the newspapers that they were the only outlet getting those materials. Wow. P.T. Barnum was such a grifter, and it's oh, yeah. fascinating. I'm I'm never going to watch The Greatest Showman, to be honest, because I don't really, it's not really my, my thing, as much as I am a musical theater major and was bombarded with discourse about it for months after its release. But I am very fascinated by a lot of the absolute, like, just the, the audacity of some of the stuff Barnum got up to during his career. Oh, yeah. It is buck wild. I mean, to be fair, like, the the movie, while it is, like, obviously fairly glitzy, I mean, I saw it, while it is fairly glitzy and does obviously paint him in a much more complimentary light than he deserves, historically speaking, um, it also is very upfront about the fact that he was, like, also kind of a trash man. Oh, okay, well, that's good. There are, there are several instances of him being trash, like literal garbage in the movie. Oh, okay. It's, it's just I'll easier to that. forgive because it's Hugh Jackman. I will say the movie is, is worth watching, um... For Zendaya, <laughs> but we all knew how I felt about that anyway. I can just like watch her in every th- in, in other things. Yeah. Um. So there's that. Or uh, Kiala Settle is also phenomenal in it because she's Kiala Settle. Okay. So another like fun little fact about the uh, about the New York media kind of rush was that the advertisements showed the mermaids as being depicted as like the classic rendition of like beautiful women with a fish lower body, Mm -hmm. which is not what the Fiji mermaid looks like. (laughs) But it's fine. It's fine. So that, all of that, riled people up. They really wanted to see the mermaid. And finally, after their fake feud was over, Dr. Griffin, again, more air quotes, allowed more air quotes, Barnum to show the mermaid at the American Museum. (laughs) God. Mm Mm-hmm. So it was basically this huge outpouring of support for the museum. Attendance tripled from previous attendance numbers. Mm -hmm. And there was another hoax that he had gotten in trouble for recently. Okay, I think the hoax that they collaborated on was this woman that they claimed, Joyce Heth, who he claimed was 161 years old, but she was actually just like 75. Oh, I've heard about that too. I had totally forgotten about it, but that's that's amazing. Yeah, which is also like really really mean to Joyce. Like, that seems really crappy to be like, look at this old, withered crone. And she's like 70. Um, But this is regarded as like his first venture into showmanship kind of as a whole. And then the Fiji mermaid kind of fizzled out with time, especially because people were a little... A little suspicious of Barnum. It lasted for about a month uh, at its exhibit in New York. And then it went on a tour of the southern United States with his uncle, a man named Allenson Taylor, which is a weird first name I've never heard before. Allenson. Allenson, like son of Allen. And I don't know who am I to make fun of that, because if you you don't know the etymology of my name, Addison, friends listening, it means son of Adam. Like, that's what the name means, which is, it is what it is. My dad's name is Rick, but here we are. Rick's <laughs> not nearly as good a name, so, so I understand. Taylor, it's okay. Taylor did not have as good of uh, luck with marketing the mermaid as Barnum did. In Charleston, basically, the mermaid became the subject of this fight between two rival newspapers. Again, people fighting in the press about this mermaid. One newspaper was claiming that the mermaid was real, and the other newspaper, of course, was claiming that the mermaid was fake. And so there was this huge, basically, kind of blow up of tension in this town 
people harassed him in public, and the Reverend John Bachman, who kind of led all the skeptics, basically threatened to take and destroy the mermaid. <laughs> so it kind of, uh, that kind of, that didn't go specifically very well, and the mermaid was returned to New York after uh, all of that kind of fell apart. Oh, man. And... Barnum kind of realized he had done a little bit too much with the uh, with the Fiji mermaid and had maybe flown a little too close to the sun with it. And so, At what, what hap- point is she allowed to rest? I was going to say, let's let her, please let her retire. So, Leave if you her, if you're wondering what happened to her, she was displayed at the American Museum again in New York for a while, and then in 1859 she went on a tour to London again, came back to the U.S., and then finally took up residence at the Kimball's Museum in Boston. And that's guys, friends listening, is its last known location. Ooh. I don't think it's still there. As far as I can find, I don't think we know where it ended up finally because that was in the late 1800s. And oh, wow. There you go. Now, here's the thing. Um, the Fiji mermaid is, again, regard, regarded as obviously one of the most famous hoaxes of all time and one of the most widely debated at the time. And I should mention that it's regarded in multiple sources as being sort of the very first big showmanship success that P.T. Barnum ever had. So interesting. Kind of catapulted him into this spotlight as America's greatest showman. So, and then obviously after then he had Tom Thumb and worked with Jenny Lynn and had all the elephant stuff and all this other stuff. And I don't really care to, this is not a P.T. Barnum podcast, but that is a brief history of the Fiji mermaid. Well, well, well. And my sources for that one were um, Live Science, AncientOrigins.net, and um, the Cryptids Wiki, if you're interested. There's also a lot more reading to be done about the Fiji mermaid. If you would like, it's all over the place. Um, But yeah, and if you want to look up pictures of it, it looks kind of like what you'd expect. It is a fish body, and then they cut the fish head off, and they put a monkey torso on the fish body. Yeah, it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like on the package. There's actually also, really quick before I wrap up, there is a fun little, I just want to mention, it does appear in some uh, pop culture stuff. Um, including (laughs) there's an homage to it in Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses, which I've never seen, but apparently Rain Wilson is in it from The Office, and his character after his death is, like, made into, like, a Fiji mermaid. Okay. Like, a taxidermy. Like, that's how, like, they find his body in, like, the fun house or whatever. I've never seen House of a Thousand Corpses. It's not really my thing. frankly wild. I'm a, I'm a horror person, but that's not really my style. I'm not a Rob Zombie person. No offense. Um, there's also a reference to it. Uh, it appears in the Mystery Shack in Gravity Falls in the episode in the very first episode, Tourist Trapped. You can spot it in the Mystery Shack. Uh-huh. Excuse me. It appears in an episode of Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated as one of the objects on display at Darrow's Oddity Museum in the episode The Secret Serum, and then my favorite appearance of the Fiji mermaid in popular culture. I still think about this episode. There is an X-Files episode called Humbug that depicts the possibility of a series of murders at a sideshow having been committed by a real-life actual living Fiji mermaid. <laughs> like, that's the monster of the week in that episode. Interesting. Like a scary mermaid. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. I I love humbug. It's a good one. So that's the that's the Fiji mermaid, and that is the more like one of the more cryptozoological hoaxes I wanted to hit, and also probably the one that if I didn't hit on probably what is 
likely to be the first of several hoax-related episodes I will do over the duration of the show, people probably would have been tweeting at me into eternity asking me why I didn't talk about the VG Mermaid. So... <laughs> yeah, that's definitely fair. So, kind of taking a hard left away from explicitly cryptozoology, I want to talk about another kind of hoax. Um, are you familiar with the Fox Sisters? Um, I don't think so. Okay. I have known about the Fox Sisters since I was about eight or nine years old, and they're discussed in a great... I've mentioned on the show before, I don't think I've talked about specifically this book in as much detail, Mm -hmm. but I've talked about the series of books that I got when I was a kid that you had to order online, and they were, like, called Vampires, Ghosts, and Aliens. I had all three. Right, And the Ghosts book had a whole section about the spiritualist movement, and sort of regarded as, like, one of the inciting incidents of the spiritualist movement was the accounts and sort of, like, showmanship's not quite the right word, but sort of, like, the fervor whipped up by these sisters, um, these two girls in the 1840s, the Fox sisters, Uh who basically claimed that they were communicating with a spirit in their house. I'm sorry, can you spell the last name for me? Oh, F-O-X, like the, bir- like the bird. Like okay, the I couldn't tell if you were saying Falk or Fox. Sorry, Fox. The Fox Sisters. It's, it was mushing okay. into the S sound of sisters. So, mm-hmm. the Fox Sisters. So, they were there were three of them, and the two younger sisters basically were using, like, these rapping, knocking noises to convince the older sister and their parents that they were talking with spirits in the house. Then the older sister was kind of their manager, and they worked as mediums for a really long time. And basically, after a long period of time, they confessed to it being a hoax. So this is one that wasn't just debunked. Like, this was later in their lives. Margaret and Kate, who were the two sort of main figureheads of the Fox sisters, felt kind of bad for lying to people for a long time and said, no, we were we were making it up. So what they actually used... Uh, but at that point, you were home free. I know. But what they actually did to make the noises is they were... It was like this rapping noise. It sounded like something knocking on like the wall or like on the floor or under the table. Mm -hmm. And they were actually using like, they could crack the joints in their toes. Oh man. And it made this like, they were cracking their joints and it was making this like rapping noise. Interesting. That's just sort of a general overview. I normally don't, we've talked about this before. Wikipedia has better peer review than a lot of other sources. So You're not wrong. I'm going to just sort of uh, refer, I have a couple different sources I have like for this, but the kind of most succinct overview to use is actually the Wikipedia article. But first I will refer to a Smithsonian Magazine article that sort of, I want to kind of put you in the scenario of watching these two girls work. They were pretty young, by the way, to be such good grifters. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Margareta Maggie Fox, who was 14, and Kate, who was 11. And the in... 1848, on a late March day, they grabbed one of their neighbors and said they had something to show them. Every night around bedtime, they said, they heard a series of raps on the walls in the furniture that seemed to basically indicate something was trying to communicate. The neighbor was skeptical, came to see for herself, came into the little chamber bedroom, and they began the demonstration. Margaret started. Now count five, she ordered, and the room shook with the sound of five thuds. Count 15, she commanded. The mysterious presence obeyed. Next, she asked it to tell the neighbor's age. 33 distinct raps followed. Which, by the way, is a really easy way to offend the neighbor if you don't know her age correctly. Yeah, seriously. If you are an injured spirit, she continued, manifest it by three raps. And it did. 
So, Margaret Fox did not seem to consider the date, March 31st, April Fool's Eve, and the possibility that her daughters were frightened not by an unseen presence, but by the unexpected success of their prank. Uh, that's just what the... <laughs> which I enjoy. But Maggie and Kate went to live with their older sister because their parents deserted the house because they thought, this is a haunted house. Oh, no. We don't want to live there. So they went to live with their sister, Leah Fox, in Rochester. So... Rochester was a hotbed for religious activity, and the Finger Lakes region gave birth to Mormonism and Millerism, and there was just sort of a lot of, will it, like, kind of new beliefs sort of growing and circulating, and that was sort of, it was like a ripe community to <laughs> know a better word for it, exploit. And there was this whole rumor that started that the spirit belonged to a peddler that had been murdered in the farmhouse, and this group of Rochester residents examined the cellar of the fox's home, and they found strands of hair and something that looked like bone fragments. So I don't know if those were planted cool and fun. or if those were just accidentally there, but either way, people were suddenly like, oh my god, these girls are talking to a ghost. Um, essentially, they had this really lengthy career of working as mediums and communicating with these spirits through these series of knocks. And then during around the same time, there was this Swedish philosopher and mystic named Emanuel Swedenborg, who what kind of name. popularized a lot of ideas that grew into spiritualism. He described mm. an afterlife consisting of three heavens, three hells, and an interim destination, the world of spirits, where everyone went immediately after dying and which was more or less similar to Earth. So he basically was someone who claimed to have seen and talked with spirits on all of the planes and popularized the idea that there was this sort of intermediate plane where spirits could hang out and maybe kind of cross paths with the living. I'm into it. Then you had, in the 19th century, <laughs> Andrew Jackson Davis, who was the John the Baptist of modern spiritualism, who combined ideologies and then basically kind of compressed them into spiritualism. He wrote the principles of nature, her divine revelations and a voice to mankind. It is a truth, this is a quote from him, that spirits mm -hmm. commune with one another while one is in the body and the other is in the higher spheres. All the world will hail with delight the ushering in of that era when the interiors of men will be opened and the spiritual communication will be established. And he believed his prediction materialized a year later on the very day the Fox sisters first channeled spirits in their bedroom. About daylight this morning, that he wrote this in his diary, a warm breathing passed over my face and I heard a voice tender and strong saying, brother, the good work has begun. Behold, a living demonstration is born. And so he kind of caught wind of the Fox sisters, invited them to his home and wanted to see them prove that they could speak to ghosts. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So he joined the his cause with theirs, and it basically elevated him to the leader of a nationwide spiritualist movement. And more wow. and more people during this time period really wanted to abandon kind of Calvinism and embrace mm -hmm. the idea that it could be more optimistic and the idea that you could communicate with the dead, and maybe that death is not the end of being able to reach out to these people. And... Americans who adopted spiritualism believed they had a hand in their own salvation and direct communication with those who passed and they could sort of feel like they understood what was coming next, which until now like was sort of kind of drilled into your heads that you were never supposed to or allowed to know. So I can fully understand why people wanted to latch onto this story. And it's a story that I, I don't, unlike the Fiji mermaid, I don't have any 
disdain or mockery for people who bought into the Fox sisters and this entire movement because it makes sense to me given the state of the culture and the world and just kind of people wanted something optimistic to believe in. Yeah, and you know, it's so fascinating to talk about the spiritualist movement because, um, and I'm not an expert on it by any means, Mm -hmm. but I think people who only know enough about it to be dangerous or like think it's something definitely very different than what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think people are just thinking like, ooh, yeah, ghosts and seances and like people getting really into spooky weirdness. But it's like, it, it was really quite the opposite of the sort of satanic thing that people think it was. It was a very faith-based movement and it was a response to this idea that people were kind of tired of, like like you just said, like faith systems that felt kind of hopeless and grim. And so it was this idea that like, well, if there is a way to communicate with you know, beyond the veil, like, we will absolutely do anything we can to get our hands on that because we're desperate for information about that and Mm -hmm. something that makes it seem a little bit less terrifying. Oh, no, exactly. That's, and that's the thing about it is it was specifically kind of, it was, it was a revolution against nihilism and sadness and powerless, a feeling Mm -hmm. of being powerless. And I think it's really important when we talk about hoaxes and people who believe in them that we kind of look at the reasons why. Yeah, for sure. Because with something like the Fiji Mermaid, it's of course because it's more fun to believe in it than not, obviously. Like, And then with something like this, it's more like you want to believe it because the alternative is scary and sad. And so it, it, it makes you it, it, it just it feels so much better to accept it as real than, and it provides you with this comfort then why wouldn't you? And I have a bunch of other things I want to get into, so I don't really want to walk you through their entire long, long career because they did work as mediums for a very long time. But I do want to talk about the confession and sort of the reveal of it as a hoax. So uh, in 1851, Mrs. Culver, who was a relative of the family, admitted in a signed statement that she had assisted during the seances by touching the girls to indicate when the raps should be made. She also claimed that Kate and Margaret revealed to her the method of producing the wraps by snapping their toes and knees and ankles. So they had really crackly joints. Yeah, snapping Um, your toes just sounds horrible. Oh, it's terrible sounding. But over the years, Kate and Margaret developed really bad drinking problems. They started kind of quarreling with their sister and with the spiritualist movement, and they sort of broke away from it. Margaret kind of returned to Catholicism. There was just sort of a dissolution of everything. And then... Margaret appeared at the New York Academy of Music on October 21st, 1888 with Kate. In front of an audience of 2,000 people, she demonstrated how she could, at will, make the rapping noises audible throughout the theater. And then she had doctors come out of the audience on stage to verify that the toe joints cracking was the source of the sound. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's as if she just couldn't take carrying that anymore. Yeah, um, that's really just kind of... Yeah, that's fascinating, again, is the only word that I have for it. She also wrote a signed confession that she published, gave to New York World to be published on October 21st in 1888, and she explained the sort of initial events. Um, She expanded on her career as a medium and her travels with her sister. There's an excerpt here from her letter. Mrs. Underhill, my eldest sister, took Katie and me to Rochester. There it was that we discovered a new way to make the wraps. My sister Katie was the first to observe that by swishing her fingers, she could produce certain noises with her knuckles and joints, and that the same effect could be made with the toes. Finding that we could make wraps with our feet, first one foot and then with both, we practiced until we could do this easily when the room was dark. 
Like most perplexing things when made clear, it is astonishing how easily it is done. The wrappings are simply the result of a perfect control of the muscles of the leg below the knee, which govern the tendons of the foot and allow action of the toe and ankle bones that is not commonly known. Such perfect control is only possible when the child is taken at an early age and carefully and continually taught to practice the muscles, which grow stiffer in later years. This, then, is the simple explanation of the whole method of knocks and wraps. She also said, A great many people, when they hear the wrapping, imagine at once that the spirits are touching them. It is a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to see me some years ago when I lived in 42nd Street and I did some wrappings for them. I made the spirit wrap on the chair and one of the ladies cried out, I feel the spirit tapping me on the shoulder. Of course, that was pure imagination. And actually, Harry Houdini has talked about this phenomenon a little bit, the sound mm-hmm. kind of. Um, ref- I, if you don't know this, and I'm sure you do, Alex, but if you don't, listeners, Harry Houdini uh, kind of made a lifelong goal of debunking mediums because after the loss of his mother, he was basically, one really wanted to believe that it could be true, but was also infuriated by people who were making money off of people's grief. Oh, yeah. So he spent years debunking mediums, basically proving a lot of what they would do is they would like have like a wobbly table that they could slip their foot underneath and make shake when things were happening, or they had assistants to rig up sounds. Um, I remember reading in the book that I had, the ghosts book, in the section on hoaxes, it would talk about mediums that would manifest quote-unquote ectoplasm by like holding cheesecloth under their tongue and like pulling it out of their mouth and things like that. It, it was It's super bizarre, and there's a lot more to be said about how mediums kind of grifted in this time period. But Harry Houdini Mm -hmm. uh, talks about, there's a quote from him here. As to the delusion of sound, sound waves are deflected just as light waves are reflected by the intervention of a proper medium. And under certain conditions, it is a difficult thing to locate their source. Stuart Cumberland told me that an interesting test to prove the inability of a blindfolded person to trace the sound to its source. It is exceedingly simple, merely clicking two coins over the head of the blindfolded person, basically in the dark, if you don't have sight to kind of orient yourself and look at it, it's really easy for a sound to seem from context clues like it's coming from somewhere else, especially Mm -hmm. if you're already primed to think it is. Yeah, brains are wild, and Mm -hmm. we're so susceptible to the power of suggestion. Exactly. And so, again, this is... This episode is very brief overviews of some of my the, the hoaxes I find the most interesting, but I really wanted to get a chance to talk about the Fox sisters a little bit because I first, there's something I've known about, even before I knew about the Fiji mermaid, I've known about the Fox sisters since I was nine years old. And I was always fascinated by the idea that just by cracking their knuckles and their toes and their knees and their ankles, these two like very young girls kind of became the figurehead of a national and international movement. Mm-hmm. And then sort of reading how they themselves pulled away from it in later years. Like a lot of hoaxes get debunked after the death of the person or by people close to them. But for them specifically right. to say, this is, we faked this and this is exactly how we did it. Well, yeah. And rather than just to like let it die mm-hmm. out, but to be like, hey, you know what? We we don't want to let this go unsolved. Like, here's what happened. That is interesting. And unfortunately, when a story becomes bigger than you... And when it's something that you can't see, unlike the Fiji mermaid, you still have pictures of it and you can look at it now and be like, "Mm, that's Mm -hmm. a monkey skeleton on a fish. Um, 
there are still spiritualist circles and kind of paranormal circles that write about the Fox sisters and dismiss the idea that it was fake. Oh my gosh. Because it's all based on stories and it's all based on accounts of people being in the room mm-hmm. with them. And there are people who fully still dismiss the confessions and dismiss the uh, even the the 2000 uh, member audience that watched Margaret just like demonstrate exactly how she did it. And I think that's very interesting too, that when you have a story that becomes so much larger than life, sometimes people just really don't want to let it go. Yeah, definitely. I have two more things really quickly. I'll be a little quicker with them. Uh, I just wanted to hit on it with a little bit more detail because we talked about it on, uh, I think the last episode uh, we talked about it on a recent episode, but we talked about the uh, those the fairy photographs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they're the it's the Cottingley fairies is the hoax. Cottingly, it was in 1917. Yeah, I I know. I literally I I, I got so mad because I couldn't remember and I was trying to find it out. I just googled Arthur Conan Doyle fairy hoax. <laughs> <laughs> and I know. Side note: I know of at least one person who went out and got list of seven after last episode. So congrats! That's incredible. Um, hope you love it. Can't wait to hear your book club takes on that. That's amazing. So in so first of all, in 2018, the photos were auctioned off. Uh, they sold uh, for 20,000 pounds, if you were wondering. They were wow. sold at Dominic Winter Auctioneers in uh, Gloucestershire. And that's just a funny thing if you're wondering where they are now. I don't know who bought them, but they were bought by a private collector of some kind and... That's so we know where they are. They someone bought them in an auction in 2018. Man, I wish more than anything that I could use this moment to reveal that it was me. It was not, but how cool would that be? <laughs> oh my god, Alex, I'd be so excited. That'd be such a power move. So in Cottingley, England, in 1917, these two girls took these photographs. And if you look them up, if you search Cottingley fairies, C O T T I N G L E Y fairies, you can find pictures pretty easily. And I should say that for when they came out, for when they were first, and like before the age of Photoshop and before the age of photo manipulation and understanding how things can be staged, I can understand how someone might believe them. But also looking at them with modern eyes, it's very hard not to go, those are drawings. But here's the other thing, is that like one picture quality itself was just not that good back then. Mm -hmm. So, like, nowadays when we see a poorly taken picture, we're like, well, this was clearly done on purpose. Like, mm-hmm. why didn't they? You know what I mean? Whereas, like, back then it was like, okay, well, you take a photograph and the photograph's not that high quality. You reprint it in a newspaper and it's even less good quality. Like, the pictures I'm looking at right now, because I did look it up, like, these are much higher quality versions of these photographs than I've ever seen before. I've seen these pictures before and they've never been, like, this clear mm-hmm. because I've seen them reprinted in books and things. And, like, mm-hmm. they're just not high-res enough to print well. These oh, yeah. clearly have been, like, cleaned up and, like, enhanced. So now, of course, it's very easy to see that, like, they're drawings mm-hmm. of fairies. But at the time, like, if all you saw was a newspaper reproduction of a grainy photograph, like, and that was what you were used to seeing in all photographs, of course your brain would say, wow, this is a very, like compelling photo true nowadays like we're kind of like oh well you know all photos of cryptids are blurry because they're not real like that's where our brains are at but like Mm. that's because we're used to seeing really high def photos and high def televisions and like you know so 
So there were five photographs that were like became a kind of the famous photos. There was Francis and the Fairies, which is the probably most famous one. It shows a young girl sitting with her chin in her hand, surrounded mm-hmm. by little like dancing fairy figures. There's Elsie and the Gnome, which is Elsie. Excuse me, Elsie's sitting on the grass with a little hat on, and there's a gnome sort of leaping through frame. Uh, and then there's Francis and the Leaping Fairy, which shows Francis sort of looking off to the side with a fairy in the middle of the air. And then there's Fairy offering a posy to Elsie, which is a really lovely photo, actually. Here's the thing. These are fake, but they're actually really lovely photographs. And considering the resources these girls were working with, they actually were really talented. Yeah, seriously. Um, there's a picture, yeah, there's a fairy offering a posy to Elsie, which pictures a fairy and a li- holding a little flower out to the little girl. And then there's fairies and their sunbath, which features... Um, kind of a uh, like a bunch of fairies in the sort of standing in the grasses and that's uh the, it's the only photo that doesn't feature the one of the girls the girls who took the pictures were um francis griffith and elsie wright they were cousins and they took them in the garden of elsie's home and these pictures were taken pretty seriously by quite a lot of people most notably arthur conan doyle the creator of sherlock holmes who was a spiritualist, and he actually wrote an article about the photographs in the Strand magazine, and and he sent someone to visit them. And uh, one of these articles that I um, that I read about um, the about the about the girls who did the Cottingley Fairy pictures uh, mentioned how terrifying that would be as a child to have done this prank and then have like strangers come to your house and be like, so uh, about those fairy pictures. Yeah, seriously. They brought in psychics, like who, uh, the psychic, by the way, said that there were lots of fairies there. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's what's so fascinating about both this and the Fox sisters, right? Is it's like, what mm-hmm. happens when something gets that out of your control and you're that young? Mm-hmm. Exactly. The girls did admit, finally, that the photographs were faked in 1983, but they did claim that they had actually seen fairies that inspired them to take the photographs, which I think is very interesting. Oh, that is fun. Yeah. And Frances's daughter later insisted that fairies were real and her mother would never lie about having seen them. The way that people first kind of realized that they were, like, in a definitive way, other than just kind of looking at them and being like, mm, I don't know that they were probably mm-hmm. faked was uh, in 1978, James Randi pointed out that the fairies in the pictures looked pretty much exactly like drawings in a children's book called Princess Mary's Gift Book, which had been published in 1915. So basically, most likely is they cut the illustrations out, maybe touched them up a little bit, and then took the photos with them. But I, when I look at the pictures, I do love to kind of focus on the fact that particularly the ones where the fairies are in motion or in the air they are really beautifully set up and the composition is actually really lovely and i'm kind of Mm -hmm. sad that these girls didn't explore that artistic impulse a little bit yeah seriously just a very quick kind of final thing i found this was not a hoax i had heard of before i just thought it sounded interesting and it was featured on the uh cryptids wiki and it is the metapec creature the creature of Metapec, it is a strange animal found by Mexican farmers in May of 2007. It's categorized as a hoax because it was revealed that the creature was a buffy tufted marmoset. But 
Oh. I will st- I will probably post a picture of this and the Fiji mermaid when this episode goes up because it's very weird looking. I, it's definitely a marmoset with some sort of like mange or something because it doesn't it does look like an alien. Like it looks like an alien and it's a very clear mm-hmm. crisp photograph. It was taken in 2007. This is not a picture from a long time ago. Um and it right. and it looks a little bit like a gray, especially in the shape of its head. Um it was basically seen in Mexico in 2007, Urso Ruiz, who regularly used to set up traps to feed the owner's birds and snakes, found a small alien-like creature alive but caught in a rat trap. Four people who worked at the ranch, including the owner, claimed to have seen the creature alive, but they apparently got so scared it might escape that they decided to kill it, which is not great. Um, then, shortly Yikes. after the story became public, the ranch owner died in a car fire. So that kind of brought a lot of attention oh and kind of more scandal to the story. People being like, the aliens were seeking revenge or like someone didn't want this to get out or like kind of a lot of conspiracy stuff flocked to it because of that. Then it was sold, the creature was sold to um, Jaime Mauson, who is a UFO journalist who basically tried to pitch it for years as a real alien. It was revealed in 2010 though that the guy who originally found the creature confessed that it was entirely faked, but people were still debating whether or not it could be real until finally they were able to sort of uh, try to identify DNA combined with sort of artistic renderings and 3D mapped models of the creature, and they were able to sort of determine it's almost 100% certainly a uh, this variety of tufted marmoset. So that's just a kind of more recent little uh more recent little hoax it was originally marketed as being a baby alien (laughs) and i mean i love that i know right and it is a very weird little looking little critter but um its skeleton matches exactly the uh buffy tufted marmoset and there's not really any reason to believe that it's anything else as well as again the person who actually found it saying it's a uh, it's it's the body of a of a he referred to it as a Squirrel monkey, and then yeah, that's the whole. That's what happened. That was just another. I was gonna say bringing it home with another actual cryptid, uh, which is fun. I do. I do appreciate that. I respect the vision. Yeah, and that's one that I didn't know a lot about. So that was like a last minute addition. I just it it came up in my search, and I I thought it was interesting. But as fascinated as I am with believing in the supernatural and wanting to believe in unexplainable things, I'm equally fascinated with people who will devote years of time and energy and work to faking it yeah there's there's something about that that is so unfathomable to me that i can't wrap my head around and i i I can understand why people buy into it even but what i've never been able to really understand is what makes someone start doing that yeah i don't know particularly the longer ones like the behavioral kind of stuff like the fox sisters or a lot of kind of a lot of the like long running stuff, like the guy who first found the, f- or, or what makes someone want to believe even that deeply in like the Fiji mermaid? He finds this mermaid, he calls two scientists, says, please evaluate this for me. And they say, this is fake. And he says, absolutely not. Screw you. I'm going to get a second opinion. Well, I think, um, I think they're two separate things, right? So like mm-hmm. something like the Fox sisters or the Cottingley fairies, that's very easy for me to understand. That's a matter of like, you know, kids want to see if they can pull things off. And mm-hmm. are utterly pr- unprepared to do so to such an extreme, right? Like, right. And I think for kids, it's it's also a matter of like, you know, you get wrapped up in doing something, and 
we've talked a lot about that kind of idea of like willful cognitive dissonance. It's the idea of like, even as I am actively creating a like fake fairies and like, I know mm-hmm. I'm lying about them because I'm the one making them. There's also this mm-hmm. idea of like, if I make them real enough, I have reason to believe in them and I want to believe in them because I'm mm-hmm. a young girl and I want to believe in fairies. So like, if I can make them real enough that other people believe in them, then that somehow justifies, you know, my mm-hmm. desire to believe in them. And like, there's definitely a fascinating psychology around that. I think as mm-hmm. far as like the Barnum and Captain Eads thing, that's sort of like a, when you end up with people, it, it's almost like death of a salesman syndrome, right? It's like when you end up with people who are so desperate to be significant that they can't possibly cope with the idea that they might just be ordinary people who have been duped by a very normal thing. Like, mm-hmm. that idea is so untenable to them that they will go to extreme lengths to maintain the hope that they might be extraordinary. It's actually, actually, when you put it in those terms, it's very similar to why it's so difficult to remove people from cults. Mm-hmm. Because once you've bought into something so heavily, the idea that you've been duped is very upsetting and very yeah. kind of hard to accept. And so people have a tendency in those situations to, instead of questioning their reality and acknowledging they may have been tricked, they have a tendency to double down. So yeah. I guess it's, it's a perspective I didn't put it in before. And I actually really quickly, before we close out this episode, want to talk about a brief period of my childhood where I... I won't say participated in a hoax overtly because I but I definitely knew on some level that this was not real but I kind of wanted it to be and uh-huh. I kind of bought into my own story when I was in 3rd grade myself and this girl Lauren who was my best friend in 3rd grade and then she uh um and then she moved and I don't I have not seen her <laughs> since but she and I were obsessed with ghost stories. We would tell them on the bus home, and mm-hmm. we would read all the scary stories to tell in the dark books. And somewhere along the line, we convinced ourselves and each other and, like, a lot of girls in our class that are the bathroom across from our third-grade classroom was haunted by Bloody Mary. Interesting. And not only was it haunted by Bloody Mary, like, if you summoned her, like, the idea... I th- we didn't... We were eight, so we didn't get super deep into the lore, but I think the idea was that someone had summoned her and then she had never gone back. Like, she just kind of lived in there now. Oh, okay. Um, and that was, like, her bathroom. And and I knew that we had kind of made that up, but I would still, in the bathroom, like, when I had to go by myself, like, I remember how fast my heart would beat, and I remember that I wouldn't flush the toilet until I had mm-hmm. to immediately... Until I could, like... I would wash my hands, then go flush and, like, immediately run out of the bathroom. And I remember... Yeah. One day, and I hope, I wonder if Lauren's listening to this, because I'm going to, I remember what she did. She took it a step further, and I know in retrospect now that she did this, but at the time I was so ready to just believe that this was real. And she, with like the pink elementary school hand soap, uh, and like her finger Uh wrote get out on the mirror in the bathroom. Oh my gosh. And it was the scariest day of third grade, and I was so like thrilled and terrified at the same time. It was like that weird mix of feelings. And sure. as you were talking about that, it's something I haven't thought about in a really long time. Um, that just sort of came rushing back to me, and it, and, it, and it made me realize, yeah, that's not really too far removed from the Cottingly Fairies or the Fox Sisters or just the kind of drive that kids have to kind of yeah. create this wilder, scarier, more dangerous form of reality around the unexplained or the, like, ghosts and fairies and... Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. And I, and I think yeah. that's something too about like about power dynamics because kids, and 
we're getting a lot better with the way that we teach kids, honestly. I do believe mm -hmm. that. But for such a long period of time, the reality of childhood was kids are to be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. um, certain things are just not for kids to know. And so the, there was this period of time where you were growing up and you were, it was made very clear to you that everybody else in the world had more information than you. And it was also made very clear to you that you were not allowed to have it or to want it. And so I think something about the idea of creating these elaborate lies is the idea that it's the only opportunity they have to be in control of information. Mm -hmm. It's the only time a kid will have the chance to have information that somebody else doesn't. And it's a way to try desperately to put themselves on a level playing field. Yeah, I love that. No, that's, that's a beautiful, I think, a beautiful way to end this. Kids are so fascinating. The psychology of children is, like, amazing. And, like, I fir I'm a firm believer in not condescending to children. Oh, so totally hard same. Want to leave you with that flavor. And uh, thanks for joining me on a slightly more uh, non-traditional episode yeah, of The Cryptid Keeper. Um, as I got to kind of explore one of my favorite subjects that I don't really dive deep into very often. So... Yeah, thank you. And thank you uh, for listening. Thank you, as always, to our audio wizard, Val Patron. Thank you to Andrew Giada, who does our theme music. And is just like an all-around special friend, good guy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that was. I love it. No, it's nice. It's I wholesome. Just got some good energy. And Alex, if you uh, do you have anything to add on? Uh, just another thank you to the Lunar Light Studio for being our podcast network of choice if you enjoy our content you may enjoy any one of a number of fantastic shows on the lunar light studio including ending pending which i just recently guested on actually ending pending is a show where they talk about tv shows that only got a single season and sort of delve into why that was whether they deserved to be renewed um you know what they would have personally done if they had gotten to see it go further they talked about constantine and i came on as a guest monster expert to talk about uh, some of the cryptids and like weird monster creatures and mythology on that show and it was a lot of fun so check that episode out uh or check out any one of you know the other fantastic shows on there there are a bunch right now so you can check out the advertising or the good boys girls or um ink tank storyboard etc 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 there are so many mm -hmm. and so as always we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there Studio. Pretty, witty, and gay.